welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, friends. Nice to see you. Uh, I did make a I did make a statement a couple weeks ago that I need to repent of. Uh, I think I had mentioned the Vikings would maybe be eight and eight. I was wrong. I repent. Please forgive me, Lord. We're not. We're not. We won a game, so that's great. Uh, did anybody give themselves a Christmas present this year? Anybody buy Christmas presents for themselves? I think that's the best part of Christmas, quite frankly. We're just like, you know what? I need a new shirt. I'm gonna go get me one. So I found one with these guys on it, you guys. I've been looking for one of these for so long, and I found it, and I was like, I'm buying that for myself. <laughs> Merry Christmas to me. So there you go. Um, well, if you are new, welcome to you. We are starting a new series. So we just finished our series in Advent, and uh, we're going to begin a new series this morning. Are any of you familiar with the Revised Common Lectionary? By show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the Revised Common Lectionary or been a part of a church that used it? Two of you. Okay. Great, so we are definitely not in the liturgical stream here. So a little bit, little, well, review for you two, new information for the rest of you, maybe. So the Revised Common Lectionary is a, uh, it's essentially a way by which a church walks through a year together, and it follows the liturgical calendar. So there are three years, A, B, and C. I think it came out of Vanderbilt University. Do I have that right? Those, I think so. Okay, so there we go. Somewhere on the East Coast. And so there's year A, B, and C. And in each day or each Sunday, there is an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel, and an epistle reading or something to that effect. Usually it's four readings. Every time you would come to church, you'd hear those readings. Now, so that's the Revised Common Lectionary. There's another thing that's developed called the Narrative Lectionary. And essentially, it's the same idea. There's three years, A, B, and C. But instead of having an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a gospel, and an epistle, you walk through the narrative arc of the scriptures every year. So year A, you would walk through you know, Genesis to Revelation with select readings. And then each of those years, there's a gospel that's selected. Everybody follow me? So year A, you would walk through the scriptures, and the gospel would be Matthew once you get to this, this season right here. Year B, you'd walk through the scriptures, and you would focus in Luke. So this year is year C, and, um, and the gospel is actually Mark. And so for the next couple of weeks, at least the next couple of months, from this time through Easter, we're going to be following what's called the narrative lectionary. So if you're interested, and you, you're one of those like overachievers that reads before you come to the class... I was never that guy. Surprising, I know, but I was never that guy. If that's you, you can look this up. We'll actually put a link on the website, the Narrative Lectionary, and you can read the text that we'll be studying that day. Does that sound good? Okay, so this year is year C, and we're in Mark, so we're going to be in Mark's Gospel. So just a little bit of background before we jump in on the book of Mark. Mark is one of the synoptic Gospels. So that means that there are three Gospels that are connected to each other. They call them the synoptic Gospels. For uh, 200 New Testament points, what is the non-synoptic Gospel? Anybody out there? John, that is correct. Well done. You guys are doing well. That's great. So the synoptics are basically three Gospels that... Essentially, most of the material that is in one you find in the others, right? So they're all kind of together, and John sort of stands alone as its own separate gospel, because a lot of what you find in John you don't find in the other gospels, or stories vice versa. Um, Mark is believed to be the first of the gospels that was written, and so Matthew and Luke actually use Mark as a source material to write their narratives. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. 
What's interesting about Mark, though, even though it was one of the first ones written, is that it actually, it's sort of, it's a Cinderella story, as it were. Um, between, like, the Middle Ages and the 1900s, Mark gets, like, zero play in terms of academia and who's writing about it and talking about it. Mark is sort of, like, below the radar. Matthew, Luke, and John are the big ones. And somehow, Mark just kind of floats along in, in the, the stream of history until recently when Mark has become more in vogue to study, which is kind of why we're doing it, right? Because that's just what we do. Okay, so that didn't go well. When we have two services, I'll X that one out. Um, That is the upside of having two gatherings, guys. You can try a joke on the first hour if it just flops. You either just keep going with it because you really believe in it and it was them and not you, or you can can ditch the joke, which I have done before. I'm like, you know what? I'm keeping that because that's good. So, Mark... um, And interestingly, Mark, the other interesting thing about Mark is that Mark begins his gospel, which we'll get to in just a second, in a very, very different fashion than Matthew and Luke. If if you go to a Christmas gathering, usually you hear from Matthew and Luke because they begin with the birth story of Jesus. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy about where Jesus comes from because his audience is Jewish, and that really matters to him. And then Luke really gets into, Luke is the classic Luke 2 uh, story that you hear at Christmas. So Mark is a very fascinating book. It was written for a group of people called God-fearers, which essentially means that Mark's audience is mostly Greek, not Jewish, basically. These are people who would have said yes to the Messiah and converted kind of after the fact and are coming into this stream of Judaism slash now Jesus, and these would have, they call them God-fearers. So that's kind of Mark's audience. So with that in mind, I'll have you stand, and we'll read the passage for this morning. And it starts uh, in Mark chapter 1. It says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds. I, I, I read that to my kids last night and they're like, hey, there's a song about that. And they start doing the thing. I'm like, we're probably not going to sing that tomorrow, but verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, You are my Son, with whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Pray with me. 
God, as we come this morning um, with all that is in our hearts and minds, I ask that you would uh, that you would speak, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us. Um, God, the work that we not, might do on our parts to open our ears and our hearts uh, to hear you and see you, um, God, we do to the best of our ability. And I ask that you would come as you do, gently, and, uh, and offer yourself to us in whatever way that we might need to see you and hear you and know you this morning. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so a lot could be said about this passage for sure. Uh, part of the lectionary is sometimes you get very large readings and you, we could literally spend six to eight weeks on this text alone or this passage alone. I'm going to take a crack at it in one go, so we should be here till about one, so that's good. Um, as we, uh, thank you Jenna, I appreciate that. As we, uh, as we kind of prepare for this new year and work out the implications of Christmas and what does it mean that we, are, we have now celebrated the light of the world that has come, um, I, I want to offer a couple of things. So First and foremost, like I said before, Mark's gospel opens in a very uh, sort of startling fashion. Um, Luke and Matthew begin with the birth narrative, and Mark just sort of opens the gates wide open and says, this is the good news about Jesus. So I would say first and foremost, Mark is inviting us to wake up to something. So Mark is classically our favorite gospel because of our church's name, right? Awaken. He's inviting us to wake up to something. And if you're paying attention, Mark's gospel sort of starts with this startling announcement especially when you put it up against Matthew and Luke. Um, have you, any of you ever had a recurring dream before? Do you have recurring dreams? I've heard this happens to people. I don't know that I have any recurring dreams, but I have this recurring fear, I guess I would call it, and it's that I would miss a flight. Has uh, anybody missed a plane flight out there before? A couple of you. I don't know how this happens to people, uh, but it does, evidently. And I just have this, this dread, this fear, and in my mind it goes something like this. I oversleep, and then someone like bursts through the door, and they're like, wake up, you overslept! Which, of course, shoots like adrenaline in your body, and then you're just like, oh my gosh, I gotta go, we gotta get things! And you forget something on the way to the airport, and you show up, you're running down the terminal, like, out the deal, and fall onto the tarmac. That is a reference to Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> you fell off the jetway again? You are one pathetic loser. No offense. A bit like this dream where it's this sort of starting on, startling announcement when someone comes into my room, this is a little bit how Mark sort of opens his gospel. And the announcement that he makes is theological on one level, and it's political and it's subversive. So theological on this level... Mark is making the claim that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, right? So you have a whole bunch of people who are coming into this story from the outside, these God-fearers. And so Mark is trying to sort of get them up to speed on what's going on here. And he's essentially saying, Jesus, this guy who I'm talking about, the whole story is about, is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, which has this long, long narrative of these people all the way back to Genesis and Abraham and the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so forth. So he's saying that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. He's the one that Simeon and Anna in Luke 2 are waiting at the temple for, for most of their lives. He's not only that, but he's true Israel. Hang on to this one. We're going to come back to it. He's true Israel. He uses this phrase, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, denotes and is almost always connected to Israel. They are the sons of God, as it were, sort of 
uh, this overarching, you know, very paternal culture or patriarchal culture. So it wouldn't be the sons and daughters. It would just be the sons. We could have, take issue with that, but that's another sermon for another day, right? So the, the son of sons of God is essentially saying he is true Israel. And he's the one that the prophets have been speaking about this whole time. So Mark's announcement is theological on one level. It's absolutely political on another level. This idea of son of God is a phrase that in Rome and in Roman culture in the empire is connected to not Jesus or Yahweh, but to Caesar and the empire. This is a quote from 9 BC about the emperor Octavian. It says this, because providence has ordered our, way, our, our life in a divine way, and since the emperor, through his epiphany, interesting, has exceeded the hopes of the former good news. The word that's used there in Greek is euangelion or evangelion. It's where we get evangelism. It means good news, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass. And since the birthday of the god, the emperor, was for the world the beginning of the good news. So if you're wandering around Rome in the, in the first century or before, you would hear these words of, of good news, Evangelion, and you would hear Son of God, and you would hear them connected to one another, and it would always be in reference to the empire and Caesar. So there was this cult that's sort of not cult like sacrificed cats, but cult like religious organization, right? You with me? There was this sort of the emperor cult, they called it, and it was essentially the emperors who died would be deified, or they would uh, sort of give them godlike status, and they would speak about them as the Son of God. So when Mark comes along, and the first words out of his gospel are, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It is completely and absolutely, unequivocally, sort of standing at the front door of Rome and knocking on the door and saying, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. So it's political and it's completely subversive. It's the propaganda of the empire taken and pushed down another layer or pushed down another avenue or attributed to someone and something else. So Mark's gospel opens with this sort of explosion of theology as well as this political subversion, which I kind of like Mark for that, for that fact. He's sort of going for it. It's also subversive in the sense that not only in the face of Rome, but also Israel, Right? If you remember, we get the story of John the Baptist in this opening gospel, or the opening of Mark's gospel. And so for anyone who's listening, including those in Israel, there's this new reality that's bursting forth right here in the midst of the one that you're participating in. So imagine if you're a part of Israel, and you're just kind of going along in this whole story, this narrative of God's promise to Abraham, and we're the chosen people, and God will return to Zion and come back and restore Israel, and you're just kind of cruising along and all this, and you're waiting for this. And Mark essentially says that there is somebody who is... Okay, John the Baptist, did you catch where we find John? Did anybody catch that? In the wilderness, right? So Mark is essentially saying John is outside the city, in the wilderness, outside of the temple, outside of the power structures, outside of the sacrificial system, which is the entirety of your religious life. And he's essentially asking people to go on another journey, a journey that they've already been on. This is a new exodus, my friends. The story of the people of God, Israel, is just rooted in the Exodus. Leaving Egypt, crossing over, the baptism of Moses, it's called, when they cross over the Red Sea, fascinatingly. Leave Egypt, the baptism of Moses, into the wilderness, trusting Yahweh, into the promised land. 
So this is the journey that Israel has been on, right? Leave Egypt, cross over into the promised land. Mark opens his gospel by essentially inviting the people of God who think they're in to come outside of all the structures that they think get them in and keep them in into the wilderness to cross over to be baptized into something new that Jesus is about to do. Come on! I mean, that's in the first, like, six verses. This guy is good. Snaps. And it's this invitation to wake up. To wake up to a reality that is bursting forth right here in the middle of this one. When I was a kid, uh, my dad used to take us fishing and uh, we had this little, it was the WS-16, the Lund WS-16. Now, we, of course, as the Withams, we knew that this boat was built for us. It was the Witham Supreme 16, right? So we had this little red Lund fishing boat uh, with a 25-horse Merc on it, outboard motor. Does the smell of outboard motor oil just, uh, man, I love that. So he would take us fishing to Big Marine up in Hugo, uh, up north, and it was fantastic, right? Every mother in the room was just going to cringe at, at this next statement. Every night we would pack our lunches, which were peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, a 12-pack of Coca-Cola, and a box of Twinkies. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I believe we're not dead. So <laughs> we'd have all of our stuff set out, all of our clothes would be set, right? And then you'd try to go to sleep as a, as a young boy knowing that you were going fishing. And so finally, after hours and hours of like imagining huge, massive, large mouth that you're just like killing the next day, you'd fall asleep, and then there would come this moment, and I remember it like it was yesterday, where I would literally, I would hear the creaking of the stairs and my dad's footsteps as he, as he came up the stairs, and he would stand at the top of the stairs and he'd say, wake up, wake up, it's time. And I was just like, you know, so excited because we were going to go fishing and he'd go in the other room, Matt, Matt, wake up, it's time. And we were just like bounding with joy. And Mark's gospel is a bit like this. For those who have the ears to hear and for those who have the eyes to see what God is doing, Mark is essentially inviting you, oh, excuse me, sorry, the first century hearers, to wake up to something that's happening right here in the midst of this world. And I wonder if that's not the same invitation that Mark's gospel isn't giving to us this morning. And so maybe I would just stop and ask, as you begin a new year, and you think about new possibilities and new beginnings and something maybe that you might leave behind and something that you might create space for, which, if you've been around Awaken, the number 40 shows up in this passage. 40 is when something is dying and something is being born again and again and again and again in the scriptures. It's all here, friends. I would just ask you this morning, is there something that God is inviting you to wake up to? Something new, something fresh, something that's bursting forth right here in the midst of this world, this broken and sometimes dark and seemingly hopeless world that we live in. Somebody texted me uh, after Christmas Eve, we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And the verse about, come, uh, come thou, uh, the nation's bind, bring uh, peace, uh, our hearts, one, I don't even remember what it is. You know which one I'm talking about, right? 
the verse about bringing peace and, and binding our hearts together. They texted me and they said, I heard this song and I started singing it and I just started weeping. Wondering, is it possible? I stand here this morning having committed my life to the fact that I think it is possible. And that I think the text and the story of God in the scriptures says that it's possible. That this is what God comes to do and what God is doing right here, right now, in the midst of this world. So what is it that God is inviting you to wake up to? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's simple. Maybe it's very, very small. Maybe it's something gigantic and seeming like not even, you you don't even think it's possible. I would just maybe invite you to consider that it is and that God is inviting you to it today. So Mark begins with this sort of wake-up call to the people who are reading it. And I would say Jesus, secondly, I would say Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah represents the people. One of the things that Mark does through the gospel is his focus is always Jesus. If you read Mark's gospel, you find that Jesus is never very far from anything that's being talked about in the text. Whereas in Luke and in in Matthew, you find that there are stories about other people. Mark basically just sticks to one character— And it's Jesus. And essentially what he's saying is that Jesus is uh, the Messiah, and the Messiah represents the people. Remember what Mark's doing here. Uh, And the other gospel writers do this as well. But Jesus is true Israel. What do I mean by that? So go back in the story to Genesis. And remember, God has promised to, to this group of people through Abraham that God would essentially bring a promise to fulfillment. And that promise to Abraham was to have Many sons, and many sons said, Father Abraham, and I am one of them, right? Essentially, the promise is blessing. The promise is that God would redeem and restore and renew all that God made good in Genesis 1 and 2 in and through this one group of people called Israel, right? That they would be the city on a hill, a light that could not be hidden. That's the promise that God gives Israel and the world, and God covenants God's self to those people and that promise. Now, If you know anything about Israel, by this point in the story, there is all sorts of things that are out of whack, okay? The the priests, the high priests, the ones who are supposed to sort of offer the sacrifices in the temple, are essentially taking bribes from Rome. The whole Levitical system and and the family is in bed with Rome. There's all sorts of things wrong. The tax collectors, many of whom are Jewish, are extorting their own people, so they're not even being a blessing to each other, let alone the rest of the world. And if you pause right there, and that's the end of the story, then God has not been faithful to God's promise, right? The promise was to bring restoration and a new life and redemption through Israel. And up to this point, God has not been good on the promise. So essentially, what the gospel writers do is they take Jesus and lift him up and say, he becomes the true Israel, the representative Israel, who is and does what God has promised to do in and through this nation, Remember, Matthew starts with the lineage. He's from the line of David. He's from all these people. Why? Because he's connecting him to the promise in the story. As if to say God is good on his promise and is making good on his promise in and through Jesus, who is true Israel. You tracking? Okay, so in this way, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised son of God, and Mark makes sure for us to notice that Yahweh's, or God's disposition towards Jesus when he comes up out of the water of his baptism, is one that is pleasure and is rooted in not Jesus' good deeds, but in God's heart. Notice, when Jesus comes up out of the water, right, the sky opens, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and he hears these words, this is my son whom I love. 
This is a back to Abraham and Isaac, the first usage of the word love in the scriptures. Take your son, your son Isaac, whom you love. Jesus comes up out of the water. This is my son, my son whom I love. Come on. With whom I am pleased. Question. What has Jesus done so far? That's correct. (laughs) Not a trick question. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God's love and favor for Jesus is rooted not in Jesus' miracles, his obedience, his faithfulness, his attendance at synagogue, Nothing. Jesus has done absolutely nothing to this point in Mark's gospel. I wonder how many of us believe that that's true about God. I don't know about you, but for a lot of my life, I came to church because I thought I was supposed to. I thought that's what you did because that's what God wanted you to do, and if you didn't, God was mad. Somebody literally on Christmas Eve, I stood right back there in the middle of that gallery, and this woman said, I was late. I didn't make it to most of the Christmas Eve service. Do you think God is mad at me? I can't ma- I'm not making this up. You can't make that up. I want to just stop and remind us that Jesus's, God's pleasure and his heart towards Jesus is rooted not in anything that Jesus does, but rather in who God is and how much God loves his son. And I wonder if that would be good news for any of you this morning. That you are loved and you belong, not because of anything you do or don't do, because that's just who God is. And what's true of Jesus is true of those who are in Christ. Essentially, Mark is saying that Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah represents the people. So what's true of Jesus, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, over and over and over and over again. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, essentially, Paul says the key to that door is faith. By faith, we enter into this experience and this relationship of being in Christ. And so whatever is true of Jesus becomes true of us. So if God's favor and God's blessing and God's love for Jesus is outside of or not connected to anything that Jesus has done and we're in Christ, then I would suggest that that is true of you as well. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of those who are in Christ by faith. So friends, by faith, enter into what is already yours. God has elected all of humanity in Christ, has chosen all of humanity in Christ, and says any and all who want in on this can get in. There's no doorway that keeps you out. So, by faith, I would implore you to consider entering into a relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe it's forgiveness or victory over something in your life, being reconciled to something or someone that you feel like you are disconnected from. The scriptures say it's by faith. Say yes, start walking, start following. 
Jesus essentially says, give up your way of trying to do this and try mine. Repent, turn around is what it means, teshuva. Give up your way of trying to figure this out, to make it work, to do whatever it is you're trying to do, and just set it down and follow me. Lastly, I would say this, as we think about this passage that Mark opens with. It ends with Jesus calling his disciples, right? Jesus, and interestingly, Jesus goes on the same journey that Israel went on, right? He, he, he goes through the baptism, uh, John's baptism, and then immediately he's led where? Into the wilderness. Israel leaves Egypt. They go through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. It's like a mirror image. It's so fascinating. As if to say Jesus is doing what Israel did, and, and there comes a different result at the end of Jesus' life than there is Israel's. So Jesus invites us to follow, invites us to go on our own journeys with him, and I would say this, we have everything that we need. Everything that we need. The two things that Jesus gets, he receives the voice of God, the affirmation of, the, of God, saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I have pleasure in, and then Jesus is able to essentially see, and this is what he announces, like immediately following the baptism, after Jesus, John was put in prison, Jesus goes into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus can see the unfolding drama of God that's happening right here in their midst. He has eyes to see it. And I would say that for those of you who are on this journey with God, through Jesus, you have everything that you need. If what's true of Jesus is true of you, then God stands with the heavens open and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love and with whom I have great pleasure in, and who now has the gift of the Spirit to see what God is doing in the world. Who has the eyes to see the unfolding drama of God's redemptive story that's happening right here, right now, in your midst, in your families, in your workplaces, in your schools, at the school down the street, right here, right now. So let's go. There is a new year in front of us, and I can't tell you how excited I am. In the last 30 days, in the last four to five weeks, we have been knocking on doors since we've been in this building to try to figure out who, where is God at work and what is God up to. And like my dad used to say, Katie, bar the door. I don't even know what that means. I think it, meant like, it means like when it rains, it pours, you know? Like, we're, to no avail, we're knocking on doors, trying to get people to answer like, we want to help, like we want to serve, we want to love. And people are like, we don't believe you. Which is funny and not, right? It's sad. It's actually really, really discouraging. Sometimes I go home and I just want to kick something. Like, for, literally, for God's sake. How did we get here? Where the church shows up and says, we want to serve and we want to love and we want to help. And people say, I'm not sure I believe you. Over the last 30 days, like, it's all rain. It's raining, friends. <laughs> Make it rain, baby! Right? I have like four appointments about things that are happening around here at the school down the street, a, a, a nonprofit that wants to expand into St. Paul at a park literally in our neighborhood. Uh, uh, internationally, I've got phone, I talked to some executive from, I don't even know how far up he is on this totem pole, right over here in, my, in, in, in the sacristy the other day. I'm telling you, friends, God is on the move and wants to know if we're up for the journey or not. So I would say to you, Awaken, this morning, on December the 27th, as we think about a new season, as we begin this new chapter, this new series in Mark, and Mark is saying, wake up, people. The good news, the kingdom of God, it is near you, it is among you, it's in you, it is happening around you. So wake up to it. Oh, man, 
If this weren't a brand new shirt, I would just rip it open and be like, come on, people, let's do this, okay? So come on. Advent was all about like anticipation, like somber, let's, let's get in there. And I'm just like, let's go, people. Jesus in the temple, let's throw some tables. Okay, that's all I have this morning. <laughs> so I guess I just want to know if you're up for it. Because this place, uh, I love this church. Sometimes I wonder, like, how on earth did I get so lucky to be able to say I'm the pastor here and to be on this journey with you all? Um, So I'm so excited about what God is up to and where God is leading us, and uh, I think it's going to be good news for a lot of people. Um, I think it's good, for crying out loud, it's good news for me. So let's just start there, right? Okay. Here's what I'd like to do. We got communion coming. This is a great morning. We got the sun coming in stained glass. We got the voices of the people. We got the table. Jeez Louise. All right. So let me pray. Uh, I'm going to offer just uh, a brief word of prayer. uh, A moment of silence for you to maybe hear anything that God wants to say that I haven't. I trust that that happens every time we get together. And then we'll invite you to the table. God, as we gather this morning, uh, we center ourselves around the resurrected Jesus. If that's not true, the whole thing is for nothing. So God, thank you that you are who you are, Jesus, that you did what you did, and that sin and death and brokenness and hopelessness and darkness, that death has been put in its grave, that you have beaten and been victorious over the worst that the enemy has to offer. And so we stand with you this morning and we say yes. We want to join you. We want to wake up in our own lives, God, to whatever it is you're asking us to wake up to. We want to wake up to whatever it is that you're leading us to and calling us to as a community. And so, God, in this next just moment of silence before we come to your table, would you speak? Would you uh, tell us what we need to hear? Invite us what you um, are inviting us into. And, And may we have the courage to hear you and step into it, I pray. Good morning. My name is Deb, and I'm one of the prayer team members. Um, Just want to remind you that we would love to pray with you at any time. Um, Pray a blessing over you. Pray for your needs, whatever's on your heart. This morning, we really do want to pray a blessing over you and your family for this new season. Um, And this blessing is a blessing that Moses told his son Aaron to pray over the Israelites, the family of God. I'd encourage you this morning to just receive this blessing as God's people receive this today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.